0: Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Growing up in a Christian home, the Christian lifestyle was all I knew. We watched Christian shows. Anybody? VeggieTales? We listened to Christian music. We read Christian books. We read the Bible. We prayed as a family. You know, God and His Word seemed to inform every part of our lives. Even going to school, I I witnessed a lot of Christian culture. I went to public school, but I grew up in a small town in the Bible Belt, so my friends were Christians, my teachers went to church, my second-grade teacher read us the Bible every day for story time. I remember praying in school. It was awesome. So I grew up in what I thought was a very Christian culture, and I know that that was even more so true for some of you, particularly if you're older than I am. My parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, they grew up in a time when even more people identified as Christian and even more people went to church. My grandparents were born in the 1930s, so they were part of what's known as the silent generation. My parents were born in the late 1950s, so they're baby boomers. And then I was born in 1991, so I'm part of the millennial generation, and I'm sorry if that makes you feel. Seasoned, okay? (laughs) But I found this interesting. Here's what Pew Research discovered when they studied how Christianity has declined over these three generations. Get this. In my grandparents' generation, 84% of people identified themselves as Christian. In my parents' generation, that dropped to 76%. Then in my generation, only 49% identify as Christians. We know Generation Z, which is young people today, is that's even much lower than that for them. Here's what they found about church attendance. In my grandparents' generation, 61% of people went to church at least once a month. In my parents' generation, that dropped to 49%. Then in my generation, only 35% of people attend once a month. And we know that continues to drop as well. So what that means is we are now living in a time when the American culture around us is less Christian than ever before. Less of our population claims Jesus than any other time, and that trend shows no signs of letting up. In fact, it continues to plummet. That means today in Olathe, Kansas, you may be one of the only people pulling out of your neighborhood on Sunday morning to go to church. You may be one of the few people at your job who claim the name of Jesus. Your children may be the only Christians in their group of friends at school or on their baseball team. That's the reality of our cultural moment. And with this in mind, a lot of Christians are understandably concerned about the future, particularly those like me who who remember what their childhood was like. We may look at the country today and mourn this loss of faith. We might even become angry or anxious about the way things are. But I want to propose a different mindset for us as Christians. Rather than sadness or fear, when we see less Christian influence in our culture, I propose that we see this as an opportunity. I'm one of those annoying people that's always looking on the bright side of things. So when I hear that Christianity is declining in America today, what comes to my mind is, this is our time. This is our time to be the church, to be the shining city on a hill that Jesus called us to be. This is not the time to run or hide or create our own Christian commune, as cool as that would be. This is our time to engage the culture around us and to show people and tell people how great Jesus is. Don't get me wrong, I don't want less Christians. I don't want less people going to church. It's kind of the opposite of my whole career. But if that means that cultural Christianity is dying out, then so be it. Because I discovered growing up in the Bible Belt that many of the people who called themselves Christians did not actually follow Christ. Maybe this is an opportunity for true Christianity to shine. And as this happens, as the influence of Christianity declines around us, here's what we will find This is not something new. It may be new to many of us, but it will not be new to Jesus' followers. In fact, all throughout church history, followers of Jesus have always been countercultural and out of place. And that was especially true in the early church in the first century. These first Christians and first churches were in the minority in their culture. And this is why Peter called them exiles. Remember, that's what we saw. These believers were living in spiritual exile. They were strangers and and sojourners. So Peter wrote to help them live as Christians in an anti-Christian setting. And as our setting becomes more and more like their setting, this book right here becomes more and more applicable to us today. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's walk through our text. And I want to give you two ways exiles must live in light of the culture around us. Look with me at first Peter chapter two, verses eleven through twelve, and I'll just read that for us this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These verses mark the start of a new section for Peter. He uses that word beloved to mark that. And Peter is kind of switching gears here. He spent the first section of his letter talking about the greatness of the gospel and who we are in Christ and how we should relate to one another. You remember, we should love one another. But now he's going to talk about how we should relate to non-Christians. If we live in a culture where the people around us are increasingly non-Christian, then how should we act and live? Well, here's the first point he makes. Number one, exiles must honor God with their conduct. That's what he's saying in these first two verses. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's reminding them, hey, remember, your exiles, your strangers live different. And he uses some strong language here. He says, I urge you. He's pleading with us to abstain from these passions that wage war against our very souls. My uh, son, he's 15 months old, and uh, he is in a phase where he wants to eat everything. Uh, If there is something on the ground, he will find it and he will eat it. So when my wife is at work, she's a nurse, she works two days a week, I'm home with the kids, I'm like having to constantly monitoring where he is, what he's doing, what he's trying to eat. But I have a little help because his older sister, who's three, is the biggest tattletale. She will say, Daddy, Ben's eating tulip paper. I'll say, uh, has it been used? (laughs) Or she'll say, Daddy, Ben's eating a chip. How old is it? That's my response. When I see my son trying to eat something that he shouldn't like a pencil or the remote or some food his sister dropped on the ground last month, or under the couch, we at least clean up what's on the ground. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> I'll tell my wife. But whenever I see that happen, man, I try to stop him. I try to take it away because I know it's going to harm him. I don't say, hey, buddy, I know you really want to chew on this marker. I know it's lemon flavored, so just go ahead and enjoy it. <laughs> I don't say that. In the same way, there are things we desire that will harm us. Even as Christians, even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still have sinful flesh. And these are passions of our flesh. These are sinful desires that wage war against our souls. Do you realize that you have a sinful flesh waging war against your soul? Do you even have a category for that? that? There are attitudes and desires in your heart right now that are evil and are in the process of destroying your life. We have to wage war back. Peter says we must abstain. We need to be alert when these thoughts pop into our head. When we're tempted to think badly of someone, when we're tempted to lust after someone, when we're tempted to anger or hatred, we have to seize that desire and fight back. And here's why. Because Peter says unbelievers are watching us. Look at verse 12 again. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who are the Gentiles? Well, typically when we see that word in the New Testament, they're talking about people who were not Jewish. But in this setting, Peter's talking about anyone outside the church who was not a Christian. And he tells us that when it comes to these people, we need to live honorably among them. Why? Because they're going to speak against you as evildoers. Remember, in the early church, Christianity was a totally new movement. It was unknown in much of the world. It was strange. So unbelievers viewed Christians with suspicion and hostility. They recognized that Christians didn't live like them. They didn't worship like them. They had a totally different lifestyle to them. Christians were total weirdos. So they slandered them. They called them evildoers. And here's what Peter says he needs to do about it. Peter says, hey, when they call you evildoers, I want you to fight back. Is that what he said? No. He says, when they call you evildoers, I want you to call them evildoers back. Is that what he said? No. He says, no, I want you to keep your conduct honorable because here's what's going to happen. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. Did you see that? He's saying when you live a godly life in these conditions, it is missional. The way you live will cause some people to believe in Jesus. And on the day of visitation, that's judgment day, there will be people who will glorify God. Is that true of us? Is that true of you? And Do people see the way you live and say, man, I want to live like that? Is your lifestyle so radically different from your lost coworkers and your lost neighbors that people take notice? Do you live an attractive life to an unbelieving world? The way we live can be and should be missional in itself. People may speak evil of us. They may slander us. We may seem weird or strange. But if we live honorable lives, some people will notice. So that's our first point here is exiles living in a hostile culture. We must honor God with our conduct. And now Peter, in these next verses, is going to get into the specifics. He's going to show us exactly how and where we must honor God with our conduct. And let me tell you, he's about to come off the top rope. He's about to drop the hammer. Are you ready for this? Here's the second point, number two. Exiles must honor God with their submission. Look at verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Hang on just a second. Let me stop right there and <laughs> I think I need to read that again. Uh, that can't be right. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Really? Every human, are you sure? I mean, I know I'm subject to God and to my church, but every human institution. That's what he says. Wherever we sit under an authority, we as Christians are to submit to that authority. Whether that be in the home or business or school or the government or any other setting. But hang on. What if I don't like them? What if I don't agree with them? What if they're bad people? What if they're not Christians? Well, Peter further clarifies himself. Look again at 13 and 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Do you know who Peter is talking about when he says emperor and governors? He's talking about the Roman Empire, specifically an emperor by the name of Nero. You know anything about him? He was not a great guy. (laughs) Later, after this book was written, he would systematically torture and kill Christians, including executing peter himself and yet peter says be subject to that evil anti-christian government how can peter say that well here's why look with me at romans 13 if you want to flip over there you can or it'll be on the screen but the apostle paul writes in romans 13 he's given us a good framework for a biblical view of government and he says in chapter 13 verse 1 he says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Notice Paul says the same thing Peter did, except he adds something. He says, Hey, authority comes from God. People in authority are in the place of authority because that authority has been given to them by God. So the Bible doesn't give us qualifications here, we don't get an out whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether they're Christians or not, our job as followers of Jesus is to submit to those in authority. What if the government commands us to disobey God? Well, I'm going to get to that, but I don't want you to miss this point right here. This is so important for our times because in general, we live in a culture that dislikes authority. Just ask someone you know who is a teacher or a cop, Or works for the government, or a boss of anyone. Go and ask them how people generally respond to their authority. People don't like to be told what to do. But this can't be for followers of Jesus. What this verse tells us is that our default response, our general attitude to authority in our lives should be respect and obedience, whether we like it or not. Some of you don't like your boss. Some of you don't like the government or their laws. Some of you have a problem with President Biden. Some of you had a problem with President Trump. Some of you have problems with both. It doesn't matter. Be subject to every human institution and don't miss the reason why. Notice he says it's for the Lord's sake. We don't submit to earn favor with man. We don't do it because we don't want to get in trouble. We do it for the Lord's sake because we want to honor God. We also do it for our testimony. Look at verse 15. He says, For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I remember growing up, everything they told us was always about our testimony. They don't cuss out at the ball field that will hurt your testimony. Or your shorts are too short, you're going to ruin your testimony. Or that music you're listening to, that's devil music, that's going to hurt your testimony. But the Bible says that our being subject to authority is a part of our testimony. We keep up our testimony, not for man's approval or praise, but because it's the will of God. When we live good lives that honor the Lord, we will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, people are going to talk bad. They're going to slander us. They're going to misrepresent what we actually believe. We may be called hateful or old-fashioned or hypocrites, but when they see how we submit to authority, when they see how we honor the government, it will silence their ignorance. Let me point out that we do not return ignorance with ignorance. That's been the Christian strategy for a long time. We gotta fight and win the culture war. and We gotta destroy the liberals and take down these evil groups and fight for our conservative values. I hope you see that is not the message of the New Testament. We're not called to win a culture war. We're called to win souls for Christ. And yet much of what many of us read online and watch on cable news is constant fighting and accusing and anger. It's constant name-calling and criticizing the other side. And can you believe so-and-so said this and did this and these people and that group, they're destroying everything and we got to take them down before it's too late. Listen, friends, this is not healthy. This is not good for your soul. If that's the kind of content you consume day in and day out, it's going to leave you angry, frustrated, anxious, and nothing like Jesus. There are political pundits and cultural commentators and email newsletters and news websites and on and on that are brainwashing the church. They're destroying our ability to love our enemies and to have compassion for those who are different than us. If God is convicting you of consuming the junk you do, turn it off, log off, delete it, unsubscribe, take your computer and start a bonfire. (laughs) Because we silence the ignorance of foolish people, not with a war, but with our submission and good deeds. Now, all this talk of submitting to authority might cause us to say, hey, hey, this sounds a little oppressive. Don't we answer ultimately to God and not man? Aren't there times when we may need to disobey the government to please God? Well, that's what Peter addresses next. Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter's saying, hey, don't get me wrong, you're free. In other words, you're not owned by the government or your job or any other authority structure. You don't owe anyone your total allegiance. You are free in Christ. And so, yes, there have been and may be more times when Christians must disobey an authority to honor the Lord. I think of Corey Ten Boom the great Christian author who hid Jews in her home during the Holocaust. She was disobeying the government orders. So was she in violation of 1 Peter 2.13? No, of course not. She was free to disobey because of her allegiance to God. Other great examples we see take place in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We have in this book multiple examples of the right way to disagree with a governing authority the very beginning of the book, Daniel and his friends are taken into captivity, and Daniel refuses to eat what he's being served because it would violate the law of God. So what did Daniel do? Did he rise up and fight the power? Did he start an uprising or a rebellion? No, Daniel 1 tells us that he simply asked. Daniel asked to eat something different. He went about his opposition in a respectful way. He clearly stated his convictions. He chose to disobey, but he did it with gentleness and respect. We see again later in Daniel 3 when Daniel's three friends refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They didn't resort to making a big scene or trying to take down the government. No, they went before the king. They honored the king, and yet they took a stand for God. They said, oh, king, we are not going to do it. And if that means being thrown and burned alive in a furnace, then so be it. They accepted their fate because they obeyed God. We see it again later in the book when prayer is outlawed. Daniel doesn't go out and trash the king. He doesn't call some huge prayer meeting in the middle of town to stick it to the man. Now, what does he do? He goes into his room and he prays. And so he accepts his punishment, and he's thrown into the lion's den. But in every other situation, it seems that Daniel and his friends sought to honor and obey the king. They even worked their ways up, their way up to these high positions in his kingdom. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer in God, he was not a good man by any stretch, yet they still subjected themselves to his authority until it meant disobeying God. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. As followers of Jesus, our default starting place should be submission and obedience. But if it comes to a matter that would cause us to disobey the word of God, then we disobey the authority with respect but conviction, with the hope that our convictions will change the heart of the ruling authority like it did Nebuchadnezzar. So as followers of Jesus, we're free. Ultimately, we do not submit and obey because of man's authority. We're not compelled by man, but by God. That's why he says, don't use your freedom for evil. Being free as a Christian does not mean you can do whatever you want. In the Bible, true freedom is found in obeying God, which is why he then says, living as servants of God. That's the great paradox we find ourselves in. We're free in Christ. Yet we are servants of God. We're not bound to any earthly authority, yet we willingly subject ourselves to them in honor to God. Might there come a time in the future when we must choose to disobey the government in order to obey God? There may. That's not something we should hope for or long for. Because again, it's through our submission that we glorify God in the midst of outsiders. It's not through our anger and rebellion. It's by being a model citizen, by being someone who follows orders and rules. That's how we honor the Lord. So Christians are not anarchists or rebels. We are humble, submissive servants. I was trying to think this week of an example I could use to demonstrate that. And I think one of the things, one of the ways we can demonstrate our submission to authority it's by doing something we all love to do, just paying taxes. I do not love to pay taxes. I prefer to keep my money. But I understand that this is not optional for me. I have to pay taxes, and in obedience to God, I do so. Jesus paid taxes in Matthew 17. You remember when he told Peter to go get a coin out of a fish's mouth? I wish I could do that. Paul told us in Romans 13 to pay taxes. So taxes as much as we may dislike them, as much as we may question the stewardship of them. They are a good and simple way to honor the Lord by obeying the government. One more verse, look at last verse verse 17. Peter writes, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. This is Peter Summing up everything he's just said in a really concise way, he says, first, honor everyone. Every single person is made in the image of God. Therefore, every single person deserves our honor and respect. Even people we don't like, even people who don't like us. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. So do you honor people who disagree with you, people who think differently than you? Do you honor everyone Second, he says, love the brotherhood. We honor everyone, but we have a special love for those in our church. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Third, he says, fear God. This is the big one. This is the one that rules all the others. Yes, we honor all people. Yes, we love other believers, but we only fear God. God is the only one worthy of that level of respect and awe in our lives. When we fear God, we will fear no one else. When we orient our lives around the fear of God, then we can serve, love, and honor other people without needing their approval. And lastly, he says, honor the emperor. Brings it back to where he started. Yes, the emperor, Nero, the one who hates us. Honor him. Demonstrate your fear of God by respecting the very person who wants to destroy you. This is how God calls us to deal with, With a hostile culture around us. And Peter actually learned this the hard way. You may remember that when Peter followed Jesus in the Gospels, he made quite a few mistakes. He was the kind of guy who had to learn things by messing it all up first. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be put to death, Peter actually rebuked Jesus and said, No way, that is not going to happen on my watch Jesus said this to him in Matthew 16, 23. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter continued to demonstrate that mindset on the night Jesus was arrested. Do you remember what happened? When the guards showed up to arrest Jesus, Peter was ready to fight. He pulled out his sword. He actually swung it and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus immediately healed him. And then he said this to Peter in Matthew 26, 52 to 54. He said, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus essentially said to Peter, he said, hey, this is not the way. We don't fight those who are against us. Here's what we do instead. We die for them. And that's what Jesus did. Rather than taking up a sword, he took up a cross. And now Peter, after learning from his master, he shares the same thing with us. As followers of Jesus, when we face hostility, when we look and see the culture around us becoming less and less acceptable of our beliefs, we do not pick up a sword. We pick up a cross. We don't use violence. We use sacrifice. We don't hit back. We fight for people. We do exactly what Jesus did. We choose self-sacrificial love. We choose the way of the cross. We demonstrate to a watching world That we submit and we obey, not because we want to please an earthly king, but because we have a greater king, the king of the exiles, the king above all kings, King Jesus himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.